0: We are in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, chapter 3. I realize we've taken a couple weeks off from this series, and so it might be helpful to do a real quick review. It's it's kind of like in high schools these days, where you have, like, winter break, and then you come take your exams. It's changed. Okay, well, that's good. Apparently, that was a thing for a while. It was a dumb thing. And so... Uh, we are, let me just remind you of where we've come from in Second Corinthians, especially for those who are joining us for the first time, or maybe you're just a little bit rusty because it's been a long summer and not nearly as restful as it should have been. So, Paul established the church in Corinth, and we see that documented in Acts sometime around 50 to 51 AD, and pretty much immediately things go south. He's constantly having to send them letters to correct their misunderstandings. He's constantly having to send them letters to call them to repent of stupid decisions that they keep making and are somehow exceedingly proud of. And some of those letters are contained in the New Testament. Some of them have been lost to the pages of, or the sands of time, rather. But what we know is that ultimately Paul, continuing to call them to correction, makes them mad. And so they essentially throw off Paul as the leader and the apostle of their church. I think most of us were alive during the time when Bill Clinton was president and people tried to impeach him as president and remove him from that role. Okay, Corinth impeaches Paul. Not that they have the ability to do that, but that's what they try to do. And they say, we'll find a better apostle. We'll find another president. We don't like you anymore. And so the reasons for why they do this... When, when, when you really consider them, a lot of them sound like things we would say in our day and age if you just update the language a little bit. Uh, some of these reasons we've talked about in the letter, some of them we will get to. But one of them is that Paul is an unimpressive speaker. They've read his letters, and he's, he's just this very eloquent, thoughtful person, and he's, he's scary, and he uses big words that are hard to understand. But then they see Paul, and he's this short, stubby Jewish man who stutters over his words. And they say, you're unimpressive. And we would rather have somebody who's eloquent and great at speaking. I mean, how many times have I had a conversation with somebody who has left a church, and I ask them why, and they say, the teaching just didn't really engage me. I say, well, was it heresy? Like, were they saying something bad? No, it just was kind of boring and unengaging, and it just didn't, it didn't grab me. So I had to go somewhere where somebody really grabbed me. We're not the first people to say that. The Corinthians were saying it about Paul. Another thing that they levy at Paul is that Paul doesn't do enough miracles. The, the people that they have replaced Paul with are doing all sorts of miraculous, incredible things. And Paul did a few to demonstrate uh, his role as an apostle, but he's not doing enough to keep their attention. Now, you may hear this and think, well, that's, that's easy to point that out in our modern day. That's people who are really into the more charismatic wings of Christianity. That's, that's kind of our modern equivalent. I'm going to say it's not just that. Because in our day and age we see people in non-denominational churches who go to the church with the loudest best rock band and when they are one-upped by more rock bands and better rock bands well then they go to the next church and they increasingly go to the people that will keep their attention and entertain them the best. And so we see this issue in the church in our day and age, that people like the Corinthians are looking to be entertained and wooed by the people who lead them, and they just go to the person who woos best, and then they move to the next best wooer, and on and on and on. Perhaps what what I think is the most devastating one, if I were Paul, this would be the thing that would make me the maddest and would cause me to post angsty song lyrics on Instagram. Um, They say, you suffer too much to actually be doing God's will. If you were really called by God, if you were really an apostle, like, like you say that you are, then what we talked about these last two weeks, about what happened to Paul and Philippi, wouldn't happen. You wouldn't be thrown into prison and beaten publicly and dragged naked through the streets of Philippi, and you wouldn't be shipwrecked, and you wouldn't be getting bitten by snakes coming out of campfires, and this stuff wouldn't happen to you if you were doing what God wanted you to. Man, all you have to do is turn the TV on and turn it to the Christian television network and see people saying the same thing. Are you sick and you've asked God to heal you and he hasn't? It's because you don't have enough faith. Are you, are you in need of a car or a house and you don't have it yet? You must not actually really believe. You must not really be doing what God wants you to do. And lest you be tempted to think that's an American problem, that it's just us selfish Western Americans. Uh, here's the terrifying thing to me. As I was in Uganda this summer, we've exported that prosperity gospel to the third world and it's wreaking havoc. Because I turned on my TV in Uganda on their one TV station, which has some really great shows like Beat News where they just wrap the news instead of telling you. <laughs> but I turned, on my, I turned on my TV in Uganda to see a guy named Prophet Elvis telling people in a third world country that the reason that they're not living in mansions is because they don't have enough faith and they're not following God's plan for their life. But that's not new. We think that that's the the byproduct of Joel Osteen or modern American issues. It's not. It's a Corinthian problem, and it's just run rampant through the church ever since they said this to Paul. If you really love God and did what he wanted you to, you would have nice things, and you don't. Therefore, you must not really love God. The last thing that we tackled is that they say Paul's not qualified. He's not up for the task at hand. He is not sufficient to what needs to be done. They've impeached Paul and they've replaced him with people who have letters of recommendation. Who they're from and and what they say, we don't know. But these letters, to me, I I think of them in terms of like the, the diplomas that people hang behind their desks so that everybody knows that they're up for the task of being your psychologist or your doctor or whatever. And they're saying to Paul, where are your diplomas? Where are your letters of recommendation? I don't think you're up for this. And I mentioned a few weeks ago... I think when we started this that uh, there is an element of 2 Corinthians that is like the eight mile of biblical texts. So when when I was in middle school, this this movie came out that I'm not telling you you should or shouldn't see, but it features Eminem, who is going to destroy Drake in a rap battle very soon. Um, And Eminem plays this guy who wants to be a rapper, but has all of the odds stacked against him. He comes from the wrong side of town, he doesn't have the right friends, Uh, his mom is a woman of questionable reputation the girl that he likes doesn't want to be with him and so in the last scene of the movie he has this rap battle with his arch rival uh, and he gets the chance to go first and he knows all of the criticisms that will be levied against him by the guy that he is up against and so instead of trying to attack the person attacking him instead he just lists everything the guy's gonna say I am a nerd my friends are awful my mom is a woman of questionable reputation and on and on and on he goes And then he metaphorically and literally drops the mic and says, now tell these people something they don't know about me. And ultimately what Paul does is the same thing. I am insufficient. I have suffered. Bad things do happen to me. I am not up for the task. He doesn't even try and defend it, but what he follows it up with is, even though I'm not up for this, even though I'm not sufficient to it, God has made me sufficient to it. And that brings us to our text for the day because Paul says that the Lord has made him sufficient to be a minister of the new covenant. So let me read it for us all the way through so you can hear it as Paul meant for it to be heard and then we'll walk through it. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 7 through 8. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory... And when the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So, I mentioned just a a couple minutes ago that I was in Uganda over the summer. And I've done a couple missions trips. I've traveled around America pretty substantially, and I've seen a couple other countries in the world, <laughs> and when I first started leaving the country or even leaving the state, I was, I was the horrible tourist that just took pictures of everything, and so a while back, I was cleaning out my closet, and I found my digital camera, you know, back when you didn't use your phone for that. I found my digital camera uh, from my first out-of-country trip, which was to Costa Rica, and there's like 400 pictures over the course of two weeks, and so if you can just imagine... <laughs> A uh, sophomore in high school, Travis, with his camera around his neck just snapping constantly. That's, that's what I was like. But as I've traveled more, maybe it's just because I'm jaded or maybe it's just hard for me to be impressed or maybe I'd just rather be there than take pictures of being there. I don't take pictures as much in my traveling. And so when I was in Uganda, I really only took like 15 or 20 total pictures, which was really disappointing to my friends and family. But I tried to make each of them count and kind of capture the, the place that I was at and be able to tell a story behind each of the pictures. And so one morning, we woke up in this village that we were in, and I walked out to the hut where we ate breakfast every morning. Uh, and there was a field behind this hut where the people living in this village would raise a lot of their food, and they would raise some of it to eat, and then they would raise some of it to sell. And there's huts that sort of... Um, are just dropped across this field and there's people working in the field to uh, tend to the crops while it's cold and not hot in the heat of the day and so I take out my handy dandy iPhone because no longer do I carry a digital camera around my neck Uh, and I switch to the panoramic setting and I say I'm just going to catch this whole field. And so I start over here and I begin to do the panoramic setting on the iPhone. And I get all the way to here, and I'm still only halfway through the little pano strip you have to fill. And so I'm literally twisting backwards trying to get this picture, at which point, Jeff, who was one of the guys on the trip with me, says, what are you doing? And I said, well, there's this horrible thing about the panoramic setting on iPhones where you have to fill the whole bar for the picture to work. And Jeff says, that's not true. And I said, what are you talking about, Jeff? And he said, there's a stop button, and you just push stop, and it makes the picture for you. So, for the entirety of my panoramic iPhone existence, I have thought you had to fill the whole bar. And so I have done yoga pretzel twists to try and fill the bar for panoramic photos. And so then Jeff makes some comment like, what sort of a millennial pastor are you that you don't know this stuff? <laughs> and I said, I have no idea. It's terrifying. And, and, and I don't say this to, well, I do. I actually do say this to let you know that I know nothing about technology. I'm bad at it. I lived in this apartment that I've been in for three years now for a year and a half before I got Wi-Fi. I would just walk to Starbucks and use their Wi-Fi. And so when people come to me, and it's almost always been this way, when people come to me and say, have you heard about the new iPhone? My first response is, there wasn't, what's an iPhone? And then my second response is, why is there a new one? What's wrong with the old one? I've never owned the current system that is having games actively made for it. So when PS2 comes out, I'm buying a PS1. When 360 comes out, I'm buying just a plain old Xbox. I'm just out of the loop on this stuff. And so when people tell me about new things, I go, what's the old thing? It's great that there's a new iPhone. What's the old one? And the reason that I bring all this up is because Paul has introduced this idea in the text where he says, I am a minister of the new covenant. And And Paul expects you to ask some questions like I ask when somebody says there's a new iPhone. Specifically, there's a new covenant. What was the old covenant? If there was an old covenant, why do we need a new one? Well, if we have a new one, how is it better than the old one? Paul expects this question, and he begins to answer it in our text for the evening. And so he begins to talk about the Old Covenant and what it was like and why we needed a new one and how the new one is better. And so in verse 7, he refers to the Old Covenant by calling it the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone. And he says that it came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Now if you've grown up in the church, then you probably know enough to hear this and go, hang on a second. Paul, because as he talks about the law of Moses and as he talks about the Old Testament covenant, he calls it this ministry of death, and and you've likely heard that Paul also says a lot of really good things about the law and the Old Covenant. He calls it a schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. Uh, He says that the law is good. Uh, He he has lots of positive things to say about the law, and so you probably hear this, or at least I would presume you hear this, and you go, hang on, Paulie. You can't have this both ways. Is it a ministry of death or is it a good thing? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked what Paul's talking about. Here's the answer. That what Paul recognizes is the promise of the law is for those who are able to keep it and to keep it fully. Leviticus 18 says that if you are careful to obey these commandments, then you will find life in them. But here's what Paul understands better than you and I understand Because Paul grew up reading the law and trying to keep the law and trying to follow the law to a T. If the promise for those who keep the law is life, that's great. But nobody keeps the law. And so what are we left with but death and judgment? There is a promise of life in the law, but nobody can keep it. And so the promise is never made good on for anybody. It's like the person who says that if you're able to count all of the the jelly beans in this jar, you can get $3 million. And nobody does it. So maybe you're in this room and you would say, you know, I'm I'm here because someone dragged me here, or I'm here because I read the sign or I'm a spiritual but not religious person and uh, you know, I believe in a god and I believe in a heaven and perhaps if you're really brave you would say I also believe in a hell. But I wonder what what do you presume? What platform do you presume that you'll stand on before God? Because most people who take that perspective, I'm spiritual but not religious and there's a heaven and there's a God, most of them would say that God counts our efforts and and how well we do at being good. And I think that's perhaps a reasonable thing to consider, but I would ask you to just do two things if you're in that category this evening. One, read the Ten Commandments and read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And then two, tally every single time that you fail to keep one of the expectations contained therein. And tell me, if, if this is God's standard for goodness and he will reward people who, people who are good, tell me if you can still call yourself good by the end of that. N- not that you have broken a law, but that you, at least maybe you're better than me, but when I read it, I break all of them in some way or another, especially when Jesus takes it and expands the law to not just what you do with your body, but what occurs in your heart and mind. And so Paul calls this the ministry of death, Because nobody can keep it, and the promise for life is only for those who keep it, and we can't do it. Paul can't do it. Nobody that Paul knows can do it. And so he says, under the old covenant, we have this ministry of death carved in letters of stone. But he says that it came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Beth read for us from Leviticus chapter, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 34, and in it we see an account of what took place after Israel left the nation of Egypt. So maybe you're not familiar with this, so let me give you some background. Israel is captive in the nation of, of Egypt as slaves for about 500 years, at which point God delivers them. There's a bunch of movies about this. One of them's really bad, just came out recently, Exodus, Gods and Kings. One's really good called The Prince of Egypt. Um... But what happens is they are delivered from this and God leads them to a mountain called Sinai. At which point God makes a new covenant with Israel. Or an old covenant, I'm sorry. Moses is the mediator of this covenant. Uh, It's kind of like if you have a stockbroker who kind of goes between you and your constituents and they sort of broker the deal. And so Moses goes up onto the mountain before God and God gives him the terms. Here's what this is going to look like. You need to keep all of these commandments so that you might have life. And Moses asks God, Lord, can I look at you? Can I see your face? And God says, it's going to kill you, so nah. But if you would like, I will hide you in the cleft of this rock and I will pass by I will pass by and proclaim my goodness and my name before you. So Moses is hidden in this sort of crevice in the rock as God passes by. And because Moses is in the presence of absolute perfection and uninerrant glory in the presence of God himself, something happens to Moses on the mountain that he's unaware of. Something about Moses changes, and as he comes down the mountain, people notice it. That the glory of God has almost stuck to Moses like gum would stick to your shoe as you walk through it. And the glory of God is shining before the people of Israel. And it's terrifying to them. They are horrified by the presence and the glory of God in their midst. It would not always have been so. Adam walked with God in the cool of the garden. But because we have fallen into sin, the glory of God is terrifying. And so Paul makes this reference. Most people would say, this is Paul's commentary on Exodus 34. He says, if in giving us the old covenant, which is not permanent, which does not last, which cannot save. If in giving us the old covenant, there was such glory behind it, that the people of Israel couldn't even look at Moses. Then how much greater would the glory be? Behind a new covenant that can save, that's brokered by Jesus rather than a mere man. How much greater is the glory of what has come to pass now in these days than what came to pass in those days? So this is actually a form of argument called afortiori, which means from the lesser to the greater. We make these arguments all the time. People say things to me like, if you love your cat so much, how much more are you going to love your kids? Right, because in this lesser small area, it doesn't seem small to me right now, but I realize it is in the grand scheme of things. If this is true here, how much more true is it over here? Or or maybe you've got a friend who really loves his car, which is fine. I don't get it. I think it's sadistic. Cars have only cost me lots of money and pain and heartache, but maybe you love your car. And people say, man, if you treat your car so good, how much better are you going to treat your wife? Or how much better should you treat your wife? It's a lesser to the greater. And Paul is saying, if the covenant that wasn't permanent came with this sort of glory, how much more glorious is the one that is permanent? If the one that's written on stone was so glorious that people couldn't even gaze at the face of Moses, how much more is the covenant written on the hearts of the people of God in the blood of the Son of God? How much greater is it? It's greater. Paul asks the question, but then he actually answers his own question. He says, How much greater would this be? It must far exceed the previous covenant in glory. He says, Indeed, in this case, what, was one, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all, because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So, I don't know what Christmas looks like in your home. I realize some people love Christmas, some people hate Christmas, some people are indifferent towards Christmas. Uh, But in the low household, there's a a pretty standard way in which we conduct Christmas. There's none of these like Christmas Eve, open your presents thing. That's just not how life works with Betsy and Thurman. Um, But on Christmas morning every year, Uh, I normally wake up really early because I'm just an excitable person, and and so even to this day, I wake up at like five in the morning, and me and my parents and my brother walk out to the room where the kitchen is. The kitchen is the name of that room. we walk into the kitchen my parents make a pot of coffee and then we walk into the room where the tree is and all the presents are and the way that this has always worked for as long as I can remember is that my mom and dad always get presents for one another and then by way of Santa Claus they get presents for us and we walk in and we see everything laid out and then normally my mom just starts dishing stuff out and so she hands me one she hands my brother one she takes one she hands my dad one and then we take turns going in the circle opening them so Travis's turn Justin's turn Thurman's turn, Mom's turn, and we just continue to go in that circle. But what always happens is they they know because they wrap the presents, and they start with the lesser present. So it's socks, right? I need socks. I like socks. Keeps my feet from smelling bad. Good things in socks. You should consider them. Um, but that's always the beginning, and everybody gets something small like that, 2 or $3 gift. And then the next round is something like, oh, there was this book that I wanted to read, and so, oh, here's the book, or or a movie that I asked for, or uh, a record that I wanted, or some sort of a t-shirt that had to be special ordered, or things like that, and so uh, it continues in this sort of increasing glory in terms of the presents that we receive, but here's the thing that my parents have always done, as long as I can remember, is they always get, like, one major thing for me and my brother. Most things are, like, five to ten dollars a piece, but then they get us one real serious present, so, like, One year, it was a cell phone, because I'd never had a cell phone, and all my friends had a cell phone, and I didn't even know what it was, because I don't pay attention to technology. But they got us cell phones, and that was the big thing, and that happened at the end. Uh, Another year, Justin got a drum set, and things have never been the same since then. And uh, Another year, uh, when I was a senior in high school getting ready to go to college, my parents got me a computer. And so, at the end, when you get the big present, at least in my house, well, the socks seem a little petty by comparison. It's not that the socks are bad. I still wear them. I still like them. I promise you I do wear socks. But by comparison to this thing that has come at the end, this computer, this drum set, this iPod, this cell phone, well, man, the socks just sort of pale in comparison. And so Paul says, if the ministry of death came with glory, how much greater is the glory of the ministry that has come in Christ, this new covenant. And he answers his question saying that it is so great in glory, that it is so tremendous, that it eclipses the old covenant in its glory. It is the computer compared to the socks. The socks are good, they're not bad, but man, they don't hold a candle to that Dell gaming PC, which is probably not even cool anymore, and I don't even know if Dell's a company, but I don't pay attention to technology, so correct me at the end. And this is the point that he makes, is that The new covenant is greater, and this is why we need a new one. It's because the old one couldn't save. The old one brought death and condemnation. And we're given a new one that is greater in every way. So verse 12, he says, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, that veil is removed. So, Paul draws this parallel. We've read the text together tonight in worship, that Moses, when he entered the presence of God, would remove the veil, but could not look at God. God says it will kill you And so Moses stands in the presence of God But is still hiding his face from the presence of God He can't see him for who he is When Moses goes to the Israelites They are so afraid of the sort of residual presence of God on Moses That Moses has to cover his face Because it is horrifying to them And so Paul draws this parallel And he says just like the veil Or the cleft in the rock Separated people from seeing who God really is And what he is really like There's a spiritual veil that stands in the way of the average person being able to fully see who God is. Our hearts are veiled. I remember hearing an account of a Jehovah's Witness. No, I'm sorry, a Mormon missionary, and he had done his two-year mission, and he had done all of his evangelism, and he finally encountered a Christian who was able to answer some of his objections, and they went back and forth for months and months and months, and uh, eventually this, this Mormon missionary became a Christian, and he said he went back to his Bible, uh, the one that he had had as a Mormon, and he looked in the Gospels, and he saw all these things that he had underlined and highlighted and circled and said, wow, that's awesome, that's incredible, as a Mormon, and never once realized that it pointed to Christianity and not Mormonism. But when he came to know the Lord, the veil was gone, and he saw it for what it really was. The passages that once sung to his heart as a Mormon screamed to his heart as a Christian because the veil was gone and finally, with an unveiled face, he could see the Lord for who he truly was. And Paul says that when we know Christ, that veil that kept us from seeing God, that separated us from knowing God as he really is, it is removed. And we see him now for who he truly is with unveiled faces. I've mentioned before, when I was younger, I really, really wanted to be an anime artist. And that was just because Goku was so cool that if I could draw Goku all day, that would be the dream. But I wasn't good at arting, or drawing, or whatever you want to call it. I was just bad at art. (sighs) My parents were good parents, and so they encouraged me in this doomed endeavor of mine. Uh, And so they hired my uncle, who's a landscape architect and just a phenomenal artist, to give me drawing lessons. And the first day of the drawing lessons with my uncle, he sits me down, and instead of showing me how to draw, like, giant robots fighting each other like I needed to know, he shows me how to draw circles and lines and squares. And this was unbelievably frustrating to 5th, 6th, and 7th grade Travis. But one of the things that he said to me is in drawing a line, It's important for it to be a line that it is straight. And he said what most people do when they draw a line is that they look at the point of their pencil and they just watch it as it goes. And eventually, they remove their pencil and that line is not so straight. He said the way to draw straight lines, at least the way that he learned when he was in art school, is that you do not look at the point of the pencil, but instead you look at the point to which the line is going. So you make a start point, and you make an end point, and you put your pen on the start point, and you look at that end point as you draw that line, and that line will become straighter. It won't be perfectly straight. People aren't capable of perfection, but I say all this because the significance of what Paul is saying here is profound, that the veil is removed, that we can see God for who he really is, that we can look upon the face of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit through the lens of Scripture, through the eyes of of faith. And he says that in doing that, in beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Because at long last, we can see the end point to which the line is going, Many people think that the way to overcome sin is to white-knuckle your way through it. Stop looking at porn for three or four months and eventually you'll be fine. Uh, stop sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend and eventually it'll go away. Stop getting smashed in Ebor on a Friday night and it'll go away. That's not the biblical answer to overcoming sin, but it is instead with an unveiled face to gaze on Christ so that he becomes more beautiful and more lovely than the lesser things that we set our affections on. And that is not possible with the veil over our face. But when one turns to the Lord, we see him for who he really is. And we can truly start to become like him. And ultimately, this points you and I to a greater reality. It points us not just to our sanctification in this life. Just as the veil didn't simply point to something at one time in the nation of Israel, but the reality is seeing God for who he is with an unveiled face. It points ultimately to an eschatological, to an apocalyptic, to an eternal reality. John, in his first epistle and to the people to whom he's writing, he says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it does not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. So for now, if you are a Christian in this world, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the eyes of Scripture and the eyes of faith, you gaze on Christ and are being transformed from one Glory to another. It's the transformation that Paul experienced when he saw Christ and his life turned around. It's the transformation that Ignatius experienced when he said at the end of his life, after walking with the Lord for a long ways, he said, I do not desire at any time so much as to even breathe apart from him. He is my hope, my boast, my never failing riches. It's the transformation that Augustine experienced as he sat in the field and he opened the book of Romans and he took and he read. It's the transformation that Luther experienced when he finally saw justification by faith as the heartbeat of the scriptures. It's the transformation that John Newton experienced as he sat on a slave ship and read the imitation of Christ and eventually became the loudest opponent of slave trade. We see this again and again. When the veil is dropped and people gaze on Jesus, they are transformed. And there will come a day where you are not simply spiritually looking upon him. There will come a day where what John has said is true. And with your very eyes, you will see him. And the veil will be off. And in that day, you will see him with an unveiled face. And you will never be more fully like him than you are in that moment. So for now, for now, with unveiled faces, we behold Jesus Christ in his word, through his spirit, and among our brothers and sisters. But do not think that the veil was dropped for just that purpose. Because there will come a day when the very Jesus who was taken up into heaven descends with a shout. And you will see him with your eyes. With no veil. And you will be like him. Let's pray. Father, these are difficult realities but they are glorious realities Uh, that that what we once approached in fear which is your presence. Lord, we come now boldly. We have sung uh, in our songs and we have read in scripture that we are no longer uh, slaves but we are sons adopted into the family of God. And we see now that what stood in the way of us seeing you for who you truly are it has been removed in the new covenant, the greater covenant, the more glorious covenant. And God, I pray that we would take and read this book that you have given us and gaze on Christ through it as we long for the day when our faith is made sight, and when we see him as he is, and when we are like him. God, we pray that you take the Holy Spirit Rather, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and apply these truths to our heart as we celebrate this new covenant in the new covenant meal of communion. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.